And it says, And the peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and your minds through Jesus Christ. You know, all through the world, people are looking for answers. People are, are wanting something. People are looking for hope. And there are in many verses, but there in one verse alone, we can see where we can find true peace and true joy. And it's peace which passes all understanding. You know, I've known Christians and the situations they went through have been horrendous. I've known Christians and they went through a particular situation. They've got through it and another one has t- t- tries to take them down and another one and it keeps going. And yet that peace which passes all understanding is in their hearts and in their minds. And you know, as we look at this series, I can nearly finish there and tell you, that's the answer. Uh, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I've said, one of the, <clears throat> the biggest problems today in society and it is getting worse as mental health. You've only got to listen to the news and read the newspapers. You know, in this world, children, young people and adults, they're losing their identity. And for me, that's the issue. They're losing their identity. They don't know who they are. They're afraid to say who they are in case they offend someone. Uh, there's an organization which I follow uh, called Citizen Go. And the girl, she's a lovely Christian girl, is a director, I think, of that organization. She's been arrested because someone from the LGB community was offended at something she said. And that's, in society, people are afraid to speak now or they're going to offend someone. And I do know about a teacher who was suspended and under investigation for refusing to recognize that a child wanted to be identified as a dog. And another teacher was sacked because she refused to identify a child who was transitioning uh, from a boy to a girl. And this is what teachers are dealing with, thankfully not yet in Northern Ireland, but as I say, as everything, it will come our way. And this did a few, some research, and the suicide rate amongst young men is raising rapidly. Ask anyone, I was speaking to a social worker from North Belfast, and they couldn't believe, well, what she told me, sorry, I couldn't believe. She said that in Northern Ireland has the highest suicide rate for young men in the UK and one off. Uh, in fact, she would reckon per capita the highest in Europe, but that was her opinion now, but would definitely the highest suicide rate in the UK. The Irish News, they said young people in, in Northern Ireland are more than twice as likely to take their own lives compared to England. New figures show that the rate of suicides in teenagers and people in their early 20s has risen in recent years. According to a report by the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health, suicides amongst those ages 15 to 24 in Northern Ireland increased to 17.8 deaths per 100,000 from 17.2 recorded in a similar report in 2017, the highest rate in the United Kingdom. The suicide rate amongst people is 15 to 25 increased across the UK overall. And Northern Ireland has the second highest number of admissions to child and adolescent mental health services at a rate of 40 per 100,000 people. Why? You know, but my own opinion, I'll give you it now, is people are bombarded today by negativity. By negativity. From social media. From the main media, you've only got to watch television. Uh, I mean, I don't know how many experts have been on television with their prophecies of doom, economics, uh, ecology, all these things. 
I, I actually made a note of it because I, I brought it to my attention. And there wasn't one television news program that brought a bit of good news. And not only that, in the programs and in the social media that people follow, it's all about wars. It's all about catastrophes with the, the, uh, the earth, the earthquakes. And, you know, this has been going on for some time. And this negativity is all these people today are being fed. And no wonder they're feeling down. No wonder they're feeling depressed. <coughs> Men's, men and women's hearts, as the Bible tells us, is failing them for fear. Church, the world is falling apart. As Christians, we can look around us and we can see that. The world is falling apart. And people today need to know that there is hope. People need to know there is hope because there are people out there and they don't know there is hope. If you don't believe me, go down Belfast, down into Belfast uh, on a Saturday afternoon. And I would say the, the main place that I've came across it, as you go down Royal Avenue, there's a, place, uh, a street takes you down towards the, the cathedral quarter. And the young people down there, out of their minds on drugs, it's just, I couldn't believe it. I didn't think it was in Belfast. It was frightening church. <clears throat> frightening in the sense that I fear for the young people of this land. And I said uh, many times as we have started the study on the Sunday mornings, the church needs to be ready to help these people. The church needs to equip themselves by the Holy Spirit not to be a place of judgment, because these people don't need judgment. It needs to be a place of, uh, not judgment and misunderstanding, but a spiritual hospital where they can come in and they can find refuge and they can find support. But they're not going to feel uh, that, that they're bad. They're not going to feel that they're not worthy to be here. But they're going to feel that <clears throat> the love of the Lord Jesus Christ you know, read the Bible for yourself. In the New Testament, Jesus never turned away anybody, even those who attacked him. The lepers who you weren't allowed near, Jesus reached out and touched them. Zacchaeus, the, the tax thief, Jesus reached out and touched him. <clears throat> All these people, Jesus reaches out to them, and we as his church have to do that too. But we, as I said, we have to equip ourselves. And the first thing we need to do with people if they come to us and we sort of take on board to try and help them, what we need to do is set boundaries. Now, people are afraid sometimes to do this. But, you know, boundaries are for your own protection and the welfare of others. We need to let people know what we can do and what we cannot do. We need to be sure that they totally understand because vulnerable people, uh, can read you totally wrong and the help that you give them. Just share with Peter this morning. <clears throat> you know, vulnerable people, how they can misread. Uh, not that, well, I'll tell you in a moment, you shouldn't be giving advice, but they, they'll take it as advice when you try to help them. There was this priest trying to help these individuals who were alcoholics, probably. And he was trying to show them the harm that whiskey can do to a human body. He took a worm and he put it in the glass. He said, now I want you to watch this. The worm wriggled about in the glass. He poured the whiskey in and the worm died. He says, now tell me, what on earth does that teach you? And Father, and he says, yes. And he says, well, if you've got worms, you can drink whiskey. <laughs> so <laughs> he was encouraged to drink more because he wasn't clear on the advice he got. So we've got to be clear on the advice we get. So 
what are boundaries? Confidentiality. When someone comes to you and you want to help them, you need to offer them confidentiality. Someone they can talk to. Someone that they can relate to. Someone that they have confidence enough to trust. Because out there, they can't trust anyone. Seriously, folks. That's how bad some people are. They're afraid to say how they feel for different reasons. And so we have to offer them confidentiality. But when we're offering confidentiality, we have to let them know. And this is important, especially if you're representing the church here. You can only offer confidentiality as far as when you believe that if they're going to harm themselves or harm others, you have to refer them. And that's legal, by the way. You have to refer them on. And so when I'm offering someone confidentiality, that is what I tell them. If I feel you're a har- you're a harm to yourself, or you could be harmful to someone else, then I will have to refer you on. But I always say to them, I won't do that behind your back. I, I-, I will tell you how I feel, and I will uh, talk to you about who we refer you on to. So we need to offer them confidentiality. We need to offer them true empathy. True empathy. Empathy is the ability to take on someone else's feelings as if they were your own, whilst maintaining the as if. In other words, don't take it on board if it's too much for you. I remember a friend of mine was a counsellor and she rang me and asked me to take a client for her. And this client was a sex offender and she had been abused as a young girl and she couldn't show him true empathy. And so she was professional enough to say, look, I cannot help you, but I'm going to refer you on to someone who I know may be able to help you. And thank the Lord, we we really did get on well, uh, me and this individual. So you need to know that, you know, when you're working with someone, they could bring up some old things from your past. So you need to be able to have the the, the courage within the boundaries to say, look, you know what, you'd be better maybe talking to Pastor Alan or Pastor Peter, or let me talk to someone and we'll see what help we can give you. So you got to show true empathy. Don't, whatever you do, give out money to vulnerable people. You know that. That's common sense. You would think it, wouldn't you? (laughs) But it's not. We can get them. We have help in this church through our salt ministry. Refer them to them. But don't give out cash to anyone. Uh, I was going to get beat up in town. It was a good while ago. This guy asked me for money, and I said, no, I'll buy you something to eat. He was going to fight me, so he was. That's what he just wanted money for his drugs or his drink, whatever it was. And we've got to be careful when we do that. We've got to set a limit on times when we can and cannot be contacted. And that's important. And you might think, why would you do that? Because if you don't, you'll be getting calls at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. And the main thing that you want to do when you're helping someone is that they don't become dependent on you. That's your last goal. If, you're, if you feel, I can help this person, they mustn't become dependent on you. I had a client... And when she came, she used to bring this notebook. And it took me, uh, stupidly, about two or three weeks to catch on what she was doing. And everything, when she asked me something, I was giving an answer. She was writing it down. She was more or less asking me to live her life for her. And when I caught on what she was at, then we changed it. So you have to have that line when people can come to you, especially if they're vulnerable. You can say to them, as you can see down there, that's one big one there. If you want to help them and say you can contact me, contact me through the church. And all I've got to do is ring up the church and ask for Hugh or ask for Billy 
and we'll get in touch with you or with Billy. So that's, uh, there's other things, but just so that you, you see where we're coming from. I'll ask Pete to make. Does anyone think of any other boundaries that you should set when you're helping someone? There you go. Pat. Hello, Pastor Alan. Hello. <laughs> Never give out your home address where you live. Yeah, that's right, yeah. That's right. Well, again, yeah, that's true, Carl, and it falls into the category of, I'd be, well, I mean, my phone number's the church phone number as it is, so, but I mean, from someone who's not maybe in full-time ministry, I'd be very reluctant to give out my phone number, or uh, definitely I wouldn't give out my address. Certainly, anybody think of anything else that you find would, you would need to let people know? That's David, yes. I suppose sometimes it's, it's important that you maybe don't meet people one-to-one, maybe have somebody with you that can support yes. you. Yes, especially if it, male, female, uh, or the other way around. That's right, David. Because uh, <clears throat> you don't know, especially if it's someone new comes into church, we really don't know. They'll present you with what they feel is their problem, but you don't know they could be violent. I mean, let's be honest here. Uh, or, or they could make an accusation uh, against you. If you do find yourself one-to-one with some, someone that wants to talk to you one-to-one, sit somewhere where everyone can see you. Even if you were sitting in here, I would put the lights on and sit over that wall where people in here could see what was going on. They can make all the accusations about what you said, but as long as I don't make an, an accusation of touch, and that's the safest way around that. And I mean, within the code and ethics of uh, psychotherapy, uh, you know, that's the main thing that you're warned to watch out for, saying that you touched them somewhere or you were uh, maybe a bit too forward uh, in that sense. But as I said, it, you know, you can pick your area and there are all the lights on. And again, you know, if you sat there, but no good to you, go to the back of the room where people walking by can see into the room and that would cover you. And that's a very good point, David. So as I said, there's boundaries that people need to know where, how far we're, we could go with them. And again, you know, be brave enough to say, look, you know, I wouldn't really need to pass you on to someone else. It's not a weakness. It means you really care for that person and you feel that, look, uh, you would really need to speak to someone professionally or someone else who we could maybe understand your circumstances. So when you're, you're working with someone, keep that word in your mind, boundaries. And know that it's for your protection. And it's also for their protection. And, and to help them. It's a very important thing. Now there are many uh, mental health problems. Which many of us do not understand. Uh, tonight I'm going to talk about depression. And I've talked with those depression, with those with depression many times. And they say that people say to them. And these are the things not to say. And you might think I wouldn't say that. But this is... Statements which people who have depression have told me while I've talked to them. Sure, you'll be all right in a while. You know, you might be trying to encourage someone, but to say to someone who's clinically depressed especially, you'll be all right in a while, is not a thing to say. This one, uh, never ever even think this. Sure, you're a Christian. How on earth could you be depressed? You know something? that The individual that told me that still isn't over it still feels a failure as a Christian. And this is another good one. What have you to be sad about? Amen. You could look at people and you could look in a good home life 
uh, good husband, good wife, good job, maybe a child getting brought up in a good home, and what on earth have you to be sad? Look at what you've got. Never ever say that to anyone. Stop sulking about and pull yourself together. That's another uh, most, well, not most popular one, but another popular one as such. And then is what you need to do is get up and go out. Get up and go out. Or, <clears throat> yeah, we'll, I'll just leave that one. There's many more, but we'll try and keep our time down here. You see, people with depression, they don't want to feel sad, folks. It's not a personal choice, I can assure you. I haven't met one of them who's happy they're sad. They don't want to be sad. I've talked to people, and they, I'm telling you, they hate themselves for the way they feel. They genuinely hate themselves for the way they feel. They're, they feel they're letting down their families. And we need to understand that, you know, uh, uh, and again, we'll go into helping uh, families with this, but you need to understand that this is not something that uh, a choice they have made. They cannot help feeling low. So they understand it a bit better. Now, I'm really making this simple. So if you're here tonight and you've know a wee bit about counseling or psychology, I'm oversimplifying this. If you're going to watch this later on, I know I'm oversimplifying it. But again, I'm not teaching psychology. What I generally do is categorize depression into two categories. Okay? There's environmental depression and clinical depression. So what are they? Well, environmental depression is the situation that you're going through is just causing you distress. For example, bereavement is a form of environmental depression. And there are many different kinds of environmental depression. And before I put the slide up, again, the question was out, what would you think environmental depression is? Put your, put your hands up. <laughs> It's the um, circumstances surrounding your, yourself, um, maybe loved ones, elders, as they are, a death in so the family. Someone, someone else could be environmental depression. Yep. Yeah. Or their families. Yes, go ahead, Glenn. It could be the circle of friends that they're around. That, that very, very true, Glenn. That maybe they just can't see a way out of getting away from. Which that's is very true, yeah. Due to your environment. It's peer pressure, Glenn, and that's very true. There's... Uh, I mean, in, when I was in the YOC, as you know, <laughs> uh, some of the guys, uh, and they didn't want to hang about, but they had to because of the estate they lived in. You know, speaking to Brother Davy Rainey this morning, and half the trouble I got into as a teenager, well, I was a bad boy too, but the majority of it was because someone else got into trouble, but you had to hang about with them. You know, you, you were part of that crowd, so that is environmental depression. There's anyone else can think of anything? Hold on, Ronnie. <laughs> Peter's going to get 10,000 steps up here tonight. Well, I, I would imagine marriage breakdowns yep. would be a big Very one. much so, yes. Um, that would be tough for people. Yep. Yes, Ronnie. Uh, well, I'll put that down as we'll see. A relationship breakup. It's environmental depression. Domestic Sorry. violence. Sorry? Domestic, Domestic violence. violence. Very much so, yes. Anyone else? There's Carl. Financial pressure. Yes, very much so. Our flexible friend got us into trouble, yes. There's one more from Glenn. Glenn, are you looking up Google here? <laughs> it, 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 it could be having no one 
no one around you either. You know, loneliness. No one, no one in your environment. Yeah, so that that's that's it. Yes, indeed, loneliness. Well, as you see there, relationship as Ronnie said, a relationship breakup, whether it's a marriage uh, or, or it's friends, just two people that have hung about together for a long time, uh, you know, and they break up as friends. Uh, as Ruth said, abuse, both physical and mental, is environmental depression. Fear is an environmental depression. Uh, a way back, there was... Uh, an individual I worked with, and we were in a really bad, bad area, and a lot was happening, and a lot of uh, people were getting hurt, and, and you know they uh, were put on the sick, and and it was fear, and they were afraid to admit they were afraid, and but you know being afraid keeps you alive in them situations, but they really were bad. They were losing sleep, and, and went and seen their doctor, and their doctor got them taken out of that environment. So I mean, you know, fears maybe the main one that people don't want to admit, but the environment and they're afraid. Ruth talked about abuse. There's women who are afraid to say anything about the abuse their husband's given them. Read all the reports, there's plenty of them uh, in the news today at the minute, particularly PSNI ones, uh, who have to take a, 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 a more in-depth look at, uh, what do you call it, uh, abuse, physical abuse a husband abusing a wife, speak to any of our girls in the SALT team, it's unbelievable some of the calls they're getting now. And that's very prevalent, unfortunately, Northern Ireland wins the league again on that one. Illness, as, as someone said, and PTSD can be environmental depression because you're in a situation, that could be anything from an accident to anyone that's been in the troubles. They uh, could end up with that. So that is uh, basically what uh, environmental depression is. And people will come to you, and, and you know they will say to you, you know, I'm uh, a lady, for example. I'm sa- I'm worried at home. I'm afraid to go home. You're going to know what's wrong with her. Why she's so depressed? There's something wrong at home. And then obviously, as was, as we'll look at as we go through, I'll give you some ways to find out. You know how to talk to them without be, you know out there and just asking the questions. So for many years, there, sorry, the, the, the issue with uh, environmental depression is that, as we said, bereavement is there too. If it's not dealt with, if it's not dealt with, then it can become clinical depression. And then it's really, then it's getting bad in the sense that you're going to need medical advice, you're going to need medication for that. And this happens because we haven't dealt with it. People think that I can deal with this myself. I can hide this. I can bury my head in the sand. Uh, this will go away. Uh, Glenn, my friends, will, so I'll be able to get away from them sometimes. People not, not dealing with it. As we said this morning, knowing I have an issue here and they haven't dealt with it. And it doesn't make them a bad person because they haven't dealt with it. It's their situation and they haven't got the proper help at the time. And so it can lead to clinical depression. What is clinical depression? Well, for many years, researchers have thought that the root cause of the root cause of depression was a chemical imbalance in the brain. Depression was thought to occur because the brain didn't produce enough of certain chemicals or neurotransmitters, such as dopamine, serotonin, and uh, I can't pronounce that one, which are important for mood regulation. So, I mean, a wee bit more about that, but let me just simplify it for you. When you're depressed. Your brain has a safety mechanism. 
and your brain is just full uh, of electromagnetics or electro signals, chem electrochemical signals. And I mean, even to do that, if you could put a brain scan on me all over my brain, you'd see little sparks going just because I raised my hand. Your brain is a, a fantastic thing. One part of uh, my, one of the degrees I studied was the, the biology of the brain, and it was fascinating. But you know, the brain, although it's fascinating, is a great thing, but it can also be a very harmful thing. And whenever you're feeling low, what your brain does, and again, I'm simplifying this, so don't come and tell me, oh, it's not like that. It's, it's a lot more than that. It is, but I'm simplifying it for you. What your brain does, it produces chemicals to slow everything down. So that it's your body's way of trying to deal with what's going on. And this happens, for example, in environmental depression, abuse, and stuff like that there. And again, the problem is that if people don't deal with that, if they let that go on, if they let that go on, they let that go on, then what your brain does is thinks you need this. And then your brain automatically produces these chemicals which slow everything down. And then you have stepped into clinical depression. And that's when, for no reason at all, you could be walking down the street and you'll start to cry. Now, I've worked with people with clinical depression. Uh, for no reason at all, they've packed in their employment. For no reason at all, uh, uh, two men that I know of walked away from a marriage so depressed that they thought their wife wouldn't want them and they're, they're, they're useless and they're no good to their family. That's how low depression can make you feel. I'm very fortunate. I was told after my PTSD, I had mild depression. Thank God I don't need mild depression because there's no way on earth I'd have wanted to be any worse than I was when I had that. And so, that pro so that's the problem and why I always encourage someone if they have an issue, and we should encourage people if they have an issue, is to deal with that issue. They need to deal with that issue because if they don't, as I've said, the brain's going to start doing this automatically and then it's going to be much harder for you to feel better, as it were, and again, you're going to need medication. One thing upon medication, there's an awful stigma with what they call psychotic medication. And I really wish it would change the name because that puts people off immediately. I'm no psycho. You know, when you tell people you're better getting, going to the doctor and getting some tablets, what do you need? Some psychotic medication. You know, what do you think I am? You know, psychotic medication helps. If your leg is sore, if your head is sore, you'll take a tablet. And psychotic medication helps you replace those uh, those chemicals that your neurotransmitters aren't are producing too much of, or aren't producing enough of. As I said, it's a lot more complicated than that. But basically, that's what's happening. And uh, so we should always say to people, words, words of, uh, of a profound meaning with some people. It's amazing what can make someone go into that low depression mode. Uh, a word, it's just, it, it just sparks off an automatic thought and takes them back into the thing which caused them depression. It would amaze you at the church. I worked with a, a lady and smell was her problem. She was married very happily with two children for a couple of years. can't remember how long. This is a good 20 years ago for, or something. But her husband changed employment and everything had gone well. She had gone through... I'll tell you what she went through in a moment. And she got over it, married this lovely lad, uh, two lovely young children. He changed his job, and she couldn't stand him. She couldn't stand him. She was physically sick. 
if he tried to hug her. Now, he loved her dearly, and in her heart of hearts, she loved him, but she just couldn't go near him. So to cut a long story uh, short, after uh, looking at it for a bit, we find out (coughs) that he was working as a mechanic. And when he came home, he stunk of oil. And when she was a child, and I'm talking four or five years of age, a neighbor sexually abused her in his garage. And as soon as she smelt the oil, it took her right back from this 25, 26-year-old woman to a four or five-year-old child in a garage being sexually abused. That's how powerful the brain is and the memory is, folks. And why, again, we should encourage people, encourage ourselves to to deal with these things and and don't put them in a box because they will come back. And we should encourage people to seek proper help and be there for them as they go through that help. So one of the main things, as I touched on in the front, when someone has talked about things people said, amen, don't worry, if my alarm's set, I won't preach any longer than two hours. I'll keep an eye on, I'll stop and pick this up, because I'm going way off my notes here several times. Uh, But I'll deal with this one before we finish, because we're coming near uh, time to hand over to Pete. What about Christians who are depressed, who are depressed, who have a mental illness? Is that, you know, I mean, you know, I've been told this, as I said to you, uh, you know, you're a Christian, why are you depressed kind of thing? Is it life that makes them sick? Have they a lack of faith? Are they attention seekers? These are things that people have been accused of, by the way. Are they attention seekers? One lad I know, I know uh, that's told that was wrong with him. He just loved attention, and he was seeking attention from others. But you know, you look in the Bible. Did Christians in past times have mental health problems? Well, from the Garden of Eden until today, men have had their issues. Church, and I want to look at a few characters from the Bible. And as I said to you a couple of weeks ago, I've looked as it were and tried to understand their thoughts at the time and how they dealt with them. And the first one was Joseph. Joseph was betrayed by his brothers. So here we can have environmental depression. You know, we look at Joseph and think he was a happy one who loved the Lord, one who trusted the Lord, never, never had a, an ounce of fear. This man was thrown into a pit, believing he was going to be killed. And then his brothers pulled him out of the pit and sold him. His father loved him. And he loved his father. And so he had betrayal. So Joseph had environmental depression. And it didn't go away for him because when he ended up in prison, and I know Joseph's story and, and how every time he got on his feet, he got knocked down again. But he was lied about and he was thrown into, into prison, working his hardest for this uh, individual. And his wife came, tried to have her way with him. He rejected that. He was thrown in prison. So there's rejection and hurt with that. It says in Galatians 40, verse 1 and 2. I don't know if I put that on the... No, I didn't. That's okay. It says, And it came to pass after these things that the butler, the king of Egypt, and his baker had offended their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was wroth against the two officers and against the chief of the butlers and against the chief of the bakers. So Joseph, we know, had interpreted both of their dreams. And what Joseph told them had come true. The butler was restored into his position. The baker was beheaded. Now Joseph asked the butler, remember me when you're free. 
This was when he interpreted the dream. And he said to him, when, you know, he knew this was God, what God had told him was going to come to pass. And he said, remember me. When you get out there, remember me. Because he was in a prison, folks. He wasn't, okay, the, the jailer had put him in charge of the prison as far as the prisoners go. But he wasn't having an easy life. They were eating whatever uh, rubbish that was left. Uh, uh, you know, I, mean, I read once that the, the, the animals were fed better, fed better than the prisoners. And so here he is. And Joseph asked him to remember me. He said, think of me when it shall be well with thee and show kindness, I pray thee. Make mention of me unto Pharaoh to bring me out of this house. The butler had forgotten Joseph's interpretation and it seemed to Joseph as if he was going to dwell in prison. Now, I don't believe that he lost faith. He still prayed, but you know, put yourself in his place. He must have felt down. He must have felt down, showing kindness, helping someone, letting them see what God was going to do in their life and then totally forgotten. His, his environment must have made him feel alone, uh, must have made him feel depressed because his destiny was present. He was a normal human, human being. And it's not wrong to assume that he had much anguish and much sorrow. We say about his joy, but to get there, he had anguish and sorrow. I'm not going to go into any depth with these ones. Moses was chosen by God to deliver his people from Egyptian bondage. What feelings do you think Moses had as he led the children of Israel? Was he frustrated with them keeping turning away from the Lord? Was he frustrated in the attacks on him? Who does he think he is? Who appointed him? You know, all these things. Rejection by those whom he tried to help. And I believe also fear. But it was maybe you could call a righteous fear. Moses was afraid, but he was afraid for Israel because he had a fear of God for Israel because he seen what Israel had done. And he was a man who loved the people despite their turning on him. Moses loved the people. When God was going to destroy them and start all over again, he interceded for them. And he didn't just get on his knees and pray. He, he tore his clothes. He put ashes on his head. He lay on the floor and wept before the Lord. And so I would say there was a fear in Moses for his people. And that should let us know when we're afraid, we're not the first ones to be afraid. Elijah, remember what he'd done with the prophets of Baal? Showed everybody there were nothing but fakes. He made fun of them. And then he brought the fire down in his altar. And what did he do? He fled and he hid in the cave. And I asked myself, what was he feeling? Well, he was feeling afraid. He was feeling lonely. But not just that. In First Corinthians, sorry, First Kings, nineteen and ten and fourteen, he stated that there were those who wanted to take his life. He was afraid for his life. But then, and if you go back into First Kings nineteen verse four, it says, "But he himself went the day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die, and said, It is enough." Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. How low must he have felt, folks? Think of it. I mean, you know, we'll put these guys on a pedestal, don't we? You know, they've never any fears, they've never any troubles. They're the easy life. These boys did not have the easy life. And you go through all the prophets. Jeremiah was thrown in prison because he refused to acknowledge the false prophets and tell Israel that their judgment would be fulfilled. But how must he have felt to be that low that he wanted, well, you could say euthanasia, but I would call it suicide. He wanted his life to go. He wanted to lose his life. 
Was he afraid of men, what they would do to him? After what he had seen God, did he lose faith? Or had he burned himself out? We don't know. Peter, I wonder how Peter felt when Jesus looked at him. You know that eye-to-eye contact? I can remember when I'd done something wrong and my mother gave me the... I knew I was for it. (laughs) The eye-to-eye contact. I thought about that a lot. When Peter denied him the third time, did Jesus' eye pierce his heart? I mean, how must he have felt, folks? Think about that. How must Peter have felt? Did he think within himself, I have failed miserably? And did he think, like a lot of people who feel God think, God will no longer love me, God will no longer want me, God will no longer use me. He must have been distraught. There's no record of as he went away and how he felt. And Paul, Paul, we know, beaten often, rejected, chased for his life out of towns and villages. And yet he said, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body? Of death, and again we read this before. I am the least of the apostles. I'm not made to be called an apostle. Do you see low self-esteem there? I mean, was Paul thinking back to the Paul he used to be? Remember we spoke about that. Looking back and on the negative side of it, instead of thinking where I am now, did Paul have times when he remembered how he persecuted the church and therefore persecuted the Lord? Did Paul remember that there? Did he have low self-esteem, rejection, defeat, and tiredness? You see, as a child of God, these things can still attack us. But how every one of these individuals dealt with it, they came before the Lord in prayer. They refused to give up. They acknowledged their weakness. They acknowledged their denial of who they are and where they were. And they turned to the Lord. And what about Jesus and his humanity? Some of you mightn't agree with me here. But remember what Isaiah said about him. Isaiah uh, 53 and 3. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus is a human being, new emotional pain. And he knows what we're going through emotionally. On the cross, he felt forsaken. Why hast thou forsaken? I mean, that's a humanity talking to the divinity. Jesus knows exactly And that's why it's important, church, that when people come to us and when we ourselves are in an issue which we feel is entrapping us, which is getting down, then as we've said in our Sunday studies, the first step for for any one of us is to actually say, Lord, I admit I am powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing and that my life sometimes is unmanageable. You know something? God will hear that genuine prayer from the heart. It says in Matthew 5 and 3, I don't know if I did put someone, but I can't remember. Yes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Another translation, uh, as you know, I'm not big into other translations, but I like this one. Happy are those who know they're spiritually poor. In other words, happy are those who acknowledge that they need the Lord. People need the Lord. And I believe people will come to not just this church, but the churches throughout the land because they need hope in their lives. They need peace in their lives. And you and I are going to be the messengers for God. God's angels, because that's what an angel is. Not somebody with wings and a harp and a tube of Philadelphia cheese, or whatever they call it. 
but someone who's a messenger for God, picking people up when they fall. Peter, will you come back and start the leaders in worship? So church, are we going to take up the call? Yes, we are indeed. But let's prepare ourselves through prayer, through the study of God's word, and let's be that place where people can find...